Open in your Bible tonight to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand and um, the ushers will make their way to you and see that you have one to follow along with us. Revelation, chapter 5. Now, by this time, all of you are... Sure and aware that the book of Revelation is not a hard book to understand. It might be a little bit intimidating, but it's not hard to understand. God made sure that we would have, as we would read it, the outline to unlock the sections of the book before we even get into it. Chapter 1, verse 19, John is told to write the things which you have seen, past tense, the things which are present tense, and the things which shall be hereafter. And we've just broken into that third section, the things which shall be hereafter. The things that will take place immediately following the church age. And we saw that the very first thing that happens, the thing that ends the church age, is the rapture of the church, where we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And in chapter 4 that we looked at last week, we saw what will take place immediately following the rapture. And, and, and John, he's caught up. He sees the throne, the judgment seat of Christ. The 24 elders on 24 thrones that are crowned and clothed in white robes received their positions. He sees the sea of glass, that perfect peace that we are waiting for, anticipating, hungering for. That we would have that peace of God that passes understanding, but that we'd be in his presence. He sees the cherubim, the seraphim, these angelic beings, these mighty creatures as he describes them to us, unlike anything that he'd ever seen before or experienced on earth. And he experiences the initial worship of heaven when we're gathered there around the throne and we cast our crowns before the Lord and declare his worth and his holiness and his might. And so John in chapter 4 describes to us what's going to take place when we break through, when we encounter that heavenly scene. And as we come into chapter 5, we kind of see what happens next. Now remember, 4 and 5 go together. Chapters 4 and 5 is the church in heaven. And in chapter 4, we saw the stage set. And now in chapter 5, the drama begins. And it tells us right there in verse 1 of chapter 5 that John, he says, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book, or a scroll, literally, written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I, John says, wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. So John tells us, after all that he experienced in chapter 4, seeing the elders worship and declare their praise for the Lord, 
He sees this book in the right hand, this scroll, if you would, rolled up and sealed with seven seals in the hand of the one who sat upon the throne. And it tells us that there was no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth that was worthy to take the scroll and to loose the seals. And that this fact, the scroll coupled with the unworthiness of anyone caused John to weep. Convulse in weeping, literally. What's happening here? What is this? What is this scroll that John sees in the hand of the one who sits on the throne? It's none other than the title deed to the planet. See, in the um, Hebrew tradition, a deed to a piece of property would be rolled and it would be written on both sides. According to the law... If you were a Jew and, 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 you know, God gave the land to the Jews, you would have your deed and you were allowed by the law to, if you fell upon hard times or if you needed some extra cash, you could sell your land or you could, uh, you know, take out a mortgage on it, if you would, and transfer the ownership for a period of time. And every seven years or in a, after a seven year period of time, you would have the ability to redeem that piece of land by meeting the conditions that were in the sale or in the mortgage. And so this piece of paper, this scroll, this papyrus, on one side it would have the description of the property at hand. And on the back side, there would be the terms of the mortgage or the terms of redemption that would have to be met in order for the land to be redeemed. But when you would enter into this contract, a second copy of the mortgage, the deed, if you would, would be made so that you would have two copies and one of the copies would be rolled up and it would be sealed and the other copy would remain open. The sealed copy would go to the new owner or to the bank, if you would, if it was a mortgage type of situation. And the open copy of the deed would be given to the person who initially owned the land because they were the ones that had the right to redeem it. They were the ones that could go and say, I've met the conditions, I want to buy this land back. In Jeremiah chapter 32, there's a scene where the people of Israel are about to be carried captive to the land of Babylon for a period of 70 years. And Jeremiah is in big trouble because he's been telling the people of Israel not to resist the Babylonian forces that are encroaching upon them at this time. He tells them that they're going to go into captivity and that resistance is futile because they're going to be taken. And for this reason, he's taken and he's thrown into the prison because the people are angry that this respected prophet is telling the people they're going to be taken from their land. But in order to show that God isn't through with them and that they'll be back in the land, God speaks to Jeremiah and he says, I want you to go and buy the piece of property that your uncle Hananiel has because it's up for redemption. And you being in his family, you have the right to redeem it and I want you to go and to buy it. And so he you know, goes about in, in his dealings and he catches word that his uncle has sent word that he wants to sell the property. And Jeremiah says, hey, now I know it's the Lord. This opportunity has come up. And so God gives him clear instruction and God tells him this. Jeremiah, you can read it, chapter 32. He says, Jeremiah, take the sealed roll and the open copy. Take both of them and put them in an earthen vessel and hide them. 
And let it be a witness or a testimony to the people that we are again going to inhabit this land. When they see, Jeremiah, that you are buying this land and taking the deed to it, then they'll know that we're coming back again, even though your message is that we're going away for a period of time. But you see how this law of redemption works, that there's the scroll with the deed upon one side, the terms and condition upon the other side, and the only person that could redeem the land was the one who had the open copy, the one who had the initial right of redemption. And the only one that could open the seal of the sealed scroll was the one who had that open deed and who met the conditions of redemption. You understand? Are you with me? Now, if after that period of time was up, the land couldn't be redeemed because the person couldn't make the payment or couldn't meet the terms and conditions of the mortgage, then ownership would transfer to the new party forever and it would be permanent. So the redemption had to happen within that set time, which according to the law of Moses was seven years. So after that period of seven years, the time of redemption would come up. And if you couldn't redeem it, then you would lose rights to that land forever. Well, what is this that's going on here in this scene as the title deed, the scroll written on both sides, sealed with seven seals, is in the hand of the one that sits upon the throne? And that no one's worthy and that John is convulsively weeping. What's happening here? Well, the world... And all of its fullness belongs to God by right of creation. Psalm chapter 24 verse 1 says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. They and they that dwell therein. That God by right of creation owns all of it. He's the rightful owner of it all. However, when God made man that we read about in the book of Genesis... And he put him upon the earth. It says in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 that God gave to Adam dominion or authority or control, if you would, over the creation that he had made. Genesis 1 26 says that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion or authority or control. Over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God gave the deed, if you would, to Adam. He gave Adam a great piece of real estate. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Donald Trump couldn't do better than that. God gave to Adam the deed to the whole thing, and he had dominion. He had control over all of it. Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 8, the, the psalmist, I believe it's David, who is reflecting upon the fact of this, expands upon the idea, and he says this. He says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor. You made him, listen, to have dominion, control, authority, power over the works of thy hands, what you made. Thou hast put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. 
O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And David says, what is man that you are mindful of him, that you would give him this privilege, this authority, this responsibility, that he would control the title deed to the earth? But see, wait a minute. Though it tells us in Genesis 1.26 that God gave to man this deed, and Psalm 8, David declares that, yes, God indeed has given man this dominion. The writer of Hebrews lets us in on a secret. Hebrews chapter 2 Verses 6 through 8, the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8, the very verses we just read. But listen to what he says. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 6, he writes and he says, But one in a certain place, speaking of David in Psalm 8, testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of thy hands. Again, dominion. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Now listen, that's the end of the quote. And listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about this. He says, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. However, but now... But now we see not yet all things put under him. So the writer of Hebrews confirms what Moses wrote in Genesis chapter 1 and what David wrote in Psalm chapter 8. And he tells us that yes, man was given, delivered this authority, this deed, this responsibility. And yet, at the present time, we see that man does not possess that authority. The deed that was delivered to Adam is not, because we are heirs, right? I mean, we all come from Adam. That would mean that if the world, if the earth was in control of man, that guess who would control it now? Us. But the Hebrew writer and our own uh, understanding tells us that this is not the case. We don't have dominion. I mean, you know, I remember as a little kid trying to get birds to land on my hand and they, they didn't obey me. I didn't have dominion over the works of God's hands. I didn't possess the power and authority of claiming ownership over the planet in this way. So what happened? Why is it that though God delivered this dominion, this authority into the hand of man, and yet now it's not there? Well, what happened to it? Well, in Luke chapter 4, in the record of the temptation of Christ, Luke tells us something about What took place in that encounter between Jesus and the devil that Matthew leaves out in Luke chapter 4. Now we're all familiar with this passage. Jesus, he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it tells us that he was driven into the wilderness where he was tempted of the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. He didn't eat. He didn't drink. He was there and he was tempted. And in that first temptation, Satan said, if you be the son of God, turn the stone into bread. And Jesus, of course, said, no, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But then, the second try, listen to what Satan says to Jesus. Luke chapter 4, verse 5. It says that the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now think about that. 
that in some way, supernaturally, mystically, Satan was able to take Jesus to one single location and in a moment of time, show him all of the kingdoms of the world in all of their glory. Going all the way back to ancient Babylon, the glory of Rome in the day that they lived presently, the future empires that would come even to the present day, all the glory of all the nations in a moment of time, Satan shows to Jesus and then he lays before him the temptation. Verse 6, And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee and the glory of them. Listen, for it is delivered unto me and to whomsoever I will I give it. If thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. Now, Jesus did not say, nuh-uh. Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and they that dwell therein. Genesis 1, 26, God gave. No, Jesus didn't argue with Satan. And what Satan was saying to Jesus, not only was it true in that he had the power to give it to whomsoever he would, and Jesus didn't argue against it. But in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus refers to Satan himself as the prince of this world. And then again, in John chapter 14, verse 30, Jesus says to his disciples, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me, referring again to Satan himself. Paul would write to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 2, and he would talk to the people there and say, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. In another place he is called the God of this world, lowercase g. That Satan is the one. He's the usurper. That in some way, at the time that Adam fell, he forfeited his dominion over planet Earth, and the deed fell into the hands of Satan. It was mortgaged, if you would, through the disobedience, the fall of Adam, and it was transferred into the power and the control of Satan. And did you know that even right now, Satan is the prince of the power of the air? He is ruling in some sense over the affairs of earth. That's why people are asking us right now, this disaster that happened over in Japan, these earthquakes that are happening so frequently, all the chaos and disaster that's going on in the world, what's going on? Isn't God sovereign? Yes, God's sovereign. Doesn't God care? Yes, God cares. But right now for this season, man by the universal representation of Adam, has transferred control over to the hand of Satan. And God is letting it play out for now. But guess what? The seven years is coming. The seven-year time period when redemption, the time of the redemption is coming. It's at hand to be redeemed. Now look, notice this, because John here is in heaven. And he sees the scroll. He understands what it is. Seeing that it's written on both sides. Sealed with seven seals. Aware that this is the title deed. Understanding and knowing the conditions on planet earth. Because Satan is the one who's in control. 
He understands the terms that are necessary to redeem the world and to restore it. And he knows because of where he is in our text that the time for redemption is up. And as he scans the list of all of the people that are there in heaven. And he considers all of the people that are on the earth and those that have ever lived. As he looks through and in that brief minute understands that there is not one, not one, that is able to meet the terms necessary for redemption. And he knows that the time is up. And that if someone doesn't come forward now that can meet the terms of redemption, that forever ownership of planet earth will be transferred into the hands of Satan. It tells us that John began to weep convulsively. Because he understood what was happening and he understood what was taking place. And it says he wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Interesting. It is, it is interesting, isn't it, that, that he doesn't say that there was no man that was willing, that none were found that were willing, but that there was none that found that were worthy. There's plenty of people that are willing. Every four years, there's a whole list of people that are willing. I can fix it. Give me a chance. But it tells us that there's none that are worthy. Adolf Hitler was willing. Alexander the Great was willing. The Caesars, all the way down through the line, they were willing. Joseph Stalin was willing. But yet, in all of it, none that are worthy, because the corruption of man is so deep, unable to meet the terms, unable to do it. But look what happens in verse 5. It says that one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed. To open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. He describes him first of all as the lion of the tribe of Judah. You remember the prophecy from Genesis chapter 49 where Jacob looks and he blesses each of his sons. And as he comes to Judah, he says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Prophesying, saying that the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer will come through the line of Judah. And then, of course, it being confirmed through David, the son of Judah. And then Jesus coming onto the throne from the tribe of Judah, the lion, the king, if you would, the one that would come to redeem and to restore. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed. Notice that both of those titles given to Jesus are titles of men, referring to his humanity, that he would come as a man through the tribe of Judah, that he would be the root of David. Why? Because the terms, part of the terms of this redemption is that it had to be a man. That's why John said that he wept much because there was no man that was found worthy. See, it couldn't be God in the sense that it it was God doing it through his power and sovereignty. The terms were, and it's in Romans chapter 5, that by one man sin entered into the world. And so therefore, according to the law, it had to be through man that redemption would come. And so the terms of his humanity given there in verse 5 is it talks of the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. And it says that he has prevailed in verse 7, 6, I'm sorry. John goes on, and not just a man, but it says that I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood 
a lamb. He hears the angel say, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. But when he looks, he sees not the lion, but he sees a lamb. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He tells us that the lamb, this lion, this man has prevailed. That there is one that has met the terms, the requirements of redemption. That can take the open scroll and present it and say, I have the right. As he approaches the judge, the one who holds the sealed deed and says, look, the time of redemption is here. And the conditions, the terms of redemption have been met. And I have done it. It's the lion. It's Jesus. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He comes before. Well, wait a minute. What is this? What are these terms? That had to be met. In Matthew chapter 13. Verse 44. Jesus told this parable. It says again. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure. That is hid in a field. The which when a man hath found. He hideth. And for the joy thereof. Goeth and selleth all that he hath. And buyeth that field. Now. That you know, parable, Jesus explained, he said that the field is the world. That the field in this parable is the world. And that Jesus came, he stumbled upon this field and that there was a treasure in the field. And so he purposed in himself that he was going to do whatever it takes to redeem and to buy this field. He looked at the deed. He saw what was necessary. What has to be done in order to buy this field, to obtain the right to hold the deed myself. And he decided that he would be the one that would purchase the deed to the earth. That he would be the one that would redeem it. And being that it was through disobedience to God's law. That the ownership was forfeited and mortgaged to Satan. It can only be by both the shedding of blood which would atone for the sin. After obedience to God's law that it could be redeemed at all. So what are the terms? The terms are that Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the Son of God, had to come onto this earth and be born as a man. He had to be fully human. You know, what is it, the Gnostics, that they they teach that Jesus was spirit, that he was half man, half God, that when he walked, he didn't leave footprints because there was a divinity to his presence, an aura about him, that, that he wasn't fully man, he was partial, he was kind of the God man, and he was the God man, but he was fully man, he had to be fully human in order to meet the terms of redemption. And not only did he have to be human, but as a human, he had to meet the requirements of God's law perfectly throughout the span of his life. That means every day of his childhood, he had to walk in a perfect manner in absolute submission and obedience to his parents. That means he had to undergo and resist every temptation that would be thrown at him through his teenage years. He had to experience the, you know, the expressions of the flesh that every human experiences. And yet he had to fight against the desire and the draw to sin in any manner or to disobey or to please himself in anything. And he had to do that perfectly every day of his life. And the Bible tells us that Jesus, our great high priest, that he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. 
That means the most grievous temptation that could ever come upon us, he faced it, he fought it, and he was victorious over it. And it was a condition that had to be met if he was to obtain right to loose the seals and buy the field. He met that requirement. And he had to fulfill all of the righteousness of the law. That means not only abstaining from sin, but that he also had to keep those things that God commanded that he keep. That he be circumcised. That he follow the rites and rituals of the Levitical code. And that he do everything absolutely according to what God had ordained in the law. It had to be kept fully. And you know what? The fact that he is worthy to take the scroll means he did it. In fact, we find out that he did it, not after he rose from the dead, but even before that. The account is in Matthew chapter 17. It tells us that Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he climbed an exceedingly high mountain. And as they were there, it says that he began to be glorified, that the light that was inside began to pierce through the veil of his human flesh, and the glory of God began to shine through the Son of God as he stood there upon that mountain. And it says that Moses and Elijah appeared and began to talk with him about the death that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. And that the voice of the Father came from heaven and ratified the perfection of the Son by saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And this didn't happen as Jesus was baptized in the Spirit or even as he was maybe bar mitzvahed as a teenager, but it happened after, towards the end of his earthly ministry. And it was at this point that the perfection of the victorious Jesus was ratified. And listen. At this point, Jesus had met the terms to buy the real estate. Do you understand? At this point, he's kept the law of God. He's lived it out in a perfect way. He's been victorious over sin and temptation. And at this point, he has the right to redeem the real estate. And he could have, at that time, if he chose, launched off into heaven, and he could have said, see, I did it. I lived the perfect life. I kept the law of God perfectly, and therefore you are all condemned by my perfection. I showed you that it could be done. But guess what? The vision ended. The glory departed. And there were Peter, James, and John alone with Jesus who stayed behind. And Jesus walked down that hill again so that he could climb another one. Bearing the cross. Where he would be pierced and bruised. And where not only had he fulfilled the righteousness that was in the law. But now he was taking the punishment for someone else's sin. Because you see the wages of sin is death the Bible declares. That the soul that sins it shall die. The penalty for unrighteousness. Is separation from God eternally. Torture. Everything that we read about in chapters 6 through 19 of Revelation. And Jesus being perfect. Having fulfilled all of the law perfectly. He yet still took upon himself the death that someone else deserved. And now we begin to realize what is the treasure in the field. That attracted him to the real estate in the first place. 
Jesus goes on in that parable in Matthew chapter 13 in verses 45 and 46. And he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. Who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Think about that. Now, if you want, you can read Romans chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 when God gives to us a very clear vision of what he sees when he looks at us. And let me tell you something, it ain't a pearl. He says, there's none righteous, no, not one. There is none that doeth good. There is none that seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all gone out of the way. They have all together become unprofitable, he says. That means worthless. That because of what sin has done in the human soul, we have become absolutely worthless to anything that would attract God to us at all. But yet in his nature of perfect love and in his willingness to redeem us, he knows what he can make us. And so he was willing to take the most precious thing that exists in all of the universe. What's that? It's the blood of Jesus Christ. Why is that the most precious thing? Because the Bible says that the life is in the blood. Which means that the very life of Jesus Christ was spent to purchase a pearl that for all intents and purposes is worthless, but is worth everything to God. Why would God look at me and find such value that he'd be willing to spend the most precious substance in the universe to obtain it? And yet that's the love wherewith God has loved us. It wasn't the real estate that he was interested in. It was the souls. The lives. The people that would be ravaged by sin. Whose world would be destroyed. Who would spend their days in torment. Lost. Wondering what's going on. Why am I here? What's the purpose for all of this? Why is there suffering in the world? And God, not willing to leave us in that condition, became a man. And he met the terms and conditions of the law perfectively. And then he hung on the cross and poured out his blood as a lamb so that we could be redeemed. He had to do it as a man, but he did it as a lamb. And thus he redeems us as well. As the world in it. Jesus drank the cup of suffering that we deserved. So that we could have the cup of fellowship with him eternally. Notice again that John sees a lamb. Having seven horns and seven eyes. And it says that he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And for the first time. In all of creation, mankind has a glimpse of a full realization of the power and authority of Jesus Christ as he takes that scroll. The Bible says that right now we see through a glass darkly that, that there's a smoke screen that we don't really understand this salvation perfectly, but for the first time here in this scene, the church is going to understand. When we see the lamb come forth, the only one that's worthy, and take the scroll and see that it's transferred, that it's given, that it's delivered because he met the terms. 
What's the response of the redeemed, those that have been bought, those that are the beneficiaries of this transaction? What will they do? It tells us in verse 8. It says, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Incense, literally. That they fall down, that they're so overwhelmed by the scene and by the realization of all that it means that there's nothing left to do but just fall before him and offer everything unreservedly to him. And it says that they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Now, who can sing that song, by the way? The church. This is your proof that this is the church. Because if this was just Jews, then they would say, you've redeemed us out of Israel. You know, uh, you've redeemed us from the seed of Abraham. But they say, no, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every family. Only the church can sing this song. The church is there in heaven giving praise to him. And, And now, not only... Did you redeem us? Did you save us so that we could have eternal life? But it says there in verse 10 that you have made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign upon the earth. It would have been enough if you had just saved us just to have been redeemed. But you've gone so much further and you've given us hope and promise for eternity. And it says, I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Literally millions of beings and voices that are singing the song of praise and adoration to the Lord. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor, and glory, and blessing. And you just get the idea, you know, that this is, it's so overwhelming that there's just more, and power, and honor, and praise. And and, and listen, you know, we stir ourselves up here on earth. But in heaven, we'll be driven by the scene that's there in front of us. Not by the emotions of it, or by the shaking of the pillars, or by the scene that's being set, or the power of the music, but it will be nothing but the Lamb. And the realization of what He's done, And the power that he has to take the scroll and what he endured for nothing else but to have us there in his presence. So that we could know him. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I sing blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. And so we see the title deed to planet earth being taken. It's now in possession of the one who has the right of redemption. The only one who has the authority now to take and break open and loose the seals. Because he has met the terms and the requirements that were Made when Adam forfeited the rights. And the time of redemption has come. And he's about to take the scroll and to loose the seals. And as we get into chapter 6. And he begins to break open these seals one by one. With each seal that's broken. There's a plague. 
and an expression of judgment that's poured out upon the Christ-rejecting world because they rejected the mercy and the grace and the blood that the Lamb spilled so that they might be saved and avert the judgment that's coming. But as we close, I just want to ask you a question. The title deed to you, who has it? Who possesses the deed to your life tonight? Ultimately, we all belong to God by right of creation. Again, Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and they that dwell therein. By right of creation, we all belong to God. He's the one that ultimately made us. And just like Adam was given dominion, he was given the deed, if you will, to control and to run things here on planet earth, God freely gives you the sovereign will over the deed of your life. You're not a robot. He doesn't control you and make you do things. He allows you to make your decisions and to live your life and to operate the way that you would. You and I are born with dominion over our own destiny. But there's a problem. Because we're descendants of Adam, and because we're byproducts of the fall, our deed, just like the deed was stripped from Adam, the deed for your life was stripped from you. That though you're a free moral agent, and that God doesn't require you to do anything, yet the prince of the power of the air, well, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul describes it very clearly. Listen to what Paul says about those that don't know Jesus Christ. He says, you hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past, you walked according to the course of this world. Notice that. Notice that this world has a course, that there's something happening. There's a vortex, if you would. There's a current that this world operates within. And everyone that's dead in trespasses and sins, Sucked into this vortex, into this current, and you're going along with the current and the tides, the trends and the culture of this world. In time past, you walked according to the course of this world. Listen, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. That you think you're a free moral agent. You think that you have control over your destiny, that you're charting your own course, but the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says that because of the problem of sin, the deed has been stripped from you, and that you are nothing but a puppet, a mere puppet in the hand of this spirit that works in the sons of disobedience, the satanic power and hold that's over the whole planet Earth. And thus you want to do the right thing, but for some reason, righteousness always eludes you. You want to be free from that vice, from that grip, but for some reason you just can't shake it. It's, it's got a hold on you in some way, and if you could just tap into something that would set you free from it. The Bible says that you're in bondage. Romans chapter uh, 6, verses 17 and 18 says that you are the servant of sin. That your freedom has been taken from you, and in what you think is freedom, you're actually locked and chained. To that thing that has deceived you. And control over our lives has been mortgaged to Satan 
by the sin that dwells within us. Listen, we have the deed, but we don't have control because we don't have the right to open the seals. We don't have access. But listen, there stands one tonight, a lamb. And by right of creation, he has the right of redemption. And he stands willing tonight to take the deed of your life in his hand, but it's up to you to give him the authority to do it. He has met the terms of redemption. He has made it possible for you to be free from the prince of the power of the air. To be delivered from the vortex of the chain of this world. And to be called a son or a daughter of the Most High God. And as he takes control of your life, as you yield authority and the deed of your life into his hands, he'll begin to control your life. He'll give you again the freedom. He said to his disciples that if you continue in my word, you're my disciples indeed, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That his desire, in fact, the word for uh, propitiation, where it talks about how he has saved us, it, it talks about how he has redeemed us or bought us out of slavery, not for the purpose of using us as his own slaves, but for the purpose of setting us free. That he purchases you out of the slave market for the purpose of giving you freedom. Think about how powerful that is. He'll give you victory where previously there was only defeat. He gives you the promise that he'll lead your path besides still waters that he'll put a light before your steps. That wavering, meandering path that you've been on, trying to figure your way and maneuver your way through this life, he says that he'll put a lamp to your path and he'll give you direction and purpose. He tells us that his thoughts towards us are for peace and not for evil to bring us to an expected end. And listen, he is able and he is willing to save you. But the ball is in your court. Because you have the authority to take that mortgage deed and to give it to the one who is worthy to redeem you. And when you do, he'll begin to cause you to live. You'll begin to understand the purpose for your life. You'll begin to understand who you are because you'll be able to read it. You'll understand it for the first time, what you're all about, why you exist. It will all make sense. As we close tonight, will you come to the Son of God who became a man and then who died as a lamb? Father, we thank you tonight for this word, for this chapter that teaches this truth. That we couldn't save ourselves. As we look around tonight and we consider the disaster that this planet has become. You said that the earth would reel to and fro like a drunkard. You said that there would be wars and famines. You said that except those days were cut short, there would no flesh be saved. And you would have been perfectly right to just let it play its course to let us destroy ourselves and to be lost forever. And I know I speak for every person here tonight, Lord, we're grateful for what you did. That you were willing to set aside your deity, to dwell among us, to enter into our sufferings, to take upon yourself the 
burden of our temptations and the sting of our pain. And then to let us thunder with our voices and say, we will not have this man rule over us. And you humbly accepted that punishment upon yourself the death of the cross. Thank you, Lord, that we were worth it to you. Lord, when we see our heart and we understand how selfish we are, it doesn't com- compute, Lord. But we thank you for what you did. And I pray for any here tonight, Lord, that don't know you that haven't yet come to the realization that you're real and that everything that's happening in this world is because of sin and the fall. I pray that 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 one tonight would hear your still small voice whispering to them saying, come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am meek and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your soul. As we close, I just wonder, is there anyone here that tonight you realize what's taking place on your behalf and you want Christ to be Lord of your life? If you're ready to take the scroll and hand it to the Son of God, just lift up your hand and say, would you pray for me? I want Jesus to be my Lord. I want to give my life to Christ tonight. Father, we just thank you so much. Pray for the person that raised their hand. I ask, Lord, that even now you would hear the cry of their heart, that you would move into them by the power of your Spirit. Seal their destiny. And I pray for the rest of us, Lord. May we leave here tonight aware of what you did and aware of where we're headed. And that we would live soberly, righteously, and godly in the duration of our time here on earth. Thank you so much for this word we had tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.